This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Also, make sure to check out and subscribe to our YouTube original channel, UCTV Prime, available only on YouTube at youtube.com slash UCTV Prime. This UCTV podcast is sponsored in part by Audible.com, your destination for the widest selection of digital audiobooks available, including many by guests you've heard here on UCTV. Audible.com is offering UCTV podcast listeners a free 30-day trial subscription and one free audiobook download. Just visit audibletrial.com slash UCTV to sign up. That's audibletrial.com slash UCTV. And thanks. Uh, my name is Henry Brady. I'm the dean of the Goldman School of Public Policy. It's with great pleasure that I welcome you to the fourth annual Michael Knock Distinguished Lecture in Politics and Public Policy. It's an annual event um, that we have generously supported and initiated by the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Fund, which supports uh, a lot of wonderful things we do. Uh, It's in honor of Michael Knock, who, wave your hand, Michael, who is the former dean of the Goldman School. Thank you. Uh, Michael, yes, yes, yes. Uh, Michael is a a combination of everything. Uh, He's a distinguished scholar uh, who writes on nuclear weapons and issues of how do you deal with nuclear material. He's involved in a very big research project right now looking at that problem uh, across the world and how to deal with it. His career, in fact, has involved actually dealing with negotiating with various foreign countries about how to dispose of and deal with those kinds of materials. Uh, His most recent post in government was in the Obama administration, uh, where he was Assistant Secretary of Defense for Global Global, uh, Strategic Affairs, an important post in which he did such things as help get our nuclear posture statement uh, done. Uh, You may remember that happened around, I think, May of 2010. Would that be right? Yeah, May of 2010. He also started, helped start the first cyber, infra- cyber warfare command at the Pentagon, which concerns itself with the threat of cyber warfare, which, as you may know, is one of the big new issues out there in the world. So he's an innovative scholar, but he's also an innovative policymaker who has had done really important things at the national level uh, with respect to some of the things that uh, have impacts uh, on the way we live. Uh, and, uh, so, and that's not all. Michael was a fabulous dean. Uh, I live every day uh, with the benefits of what he created. Uh, The second building that we have at the Goldman School is uh, largely due to Michael Knock. Uh, The fact that we now have an endowment that's considerable is largely due to Michael Knock. And just the fact that we have the fine faculty that we have has a lot to do with Michael Knock. For example, he recruited such people as Dan Kamen and Bob Reich, uh, two extraordinary faculty members. So Michael has done it all. He's been a public servant. He's been uh, a noted scholar and continues to be. Teaches wonderful classes to our students. uh, And also, as I say, was an extraordinary dean. Um, I'd also want to thank Bob Reich, who actually made the connection here between our school and Madeline Kunin, who is our speaker tonight. Uh, Let me tell you a little bit about her. 
She's got an impressive combination of political and social change credentials. She was the first female governor of Vermont and served for three terms from the mid-80s to 1991. She inherited a significant deficit, turned into a surplus. She secured enactment of a new state aid formula that provided greater share of money to schools, especially those in need. In 1990, Forbes magazine named her one of the nation's top 10 governors for education. One of her most significant achievements was an integrated land use planning process. She was one of the early leaders in thinking about how do we do a better job of conserving the land and dealing with questions having to do with energy consumption and global warming. So for example, she created the Vermont Housing and Conservation Trust Fund that conserved thousands and continues to conserve thousands of acres of land and provides affordable housing. Long before the spotlight was on global warming, she, her energy plan called for reductions in greenhouse gas emissions and reductions in per capita energy use through greater energy efficiency. So she's been a policy innovator in some incredibly important areas, education and energy. Many path-breaking firsts. She was the first Jewish governor of Vermont and the first Jewish woman ever elected governor of a U.S. state. She was the first woman in U.S. history to be elected governor three times and the fourth woman to be elected governor in her own right instead of succeeding a deceased husband. There's a lot of stories, especially in places like Texas. Uh, Ma Ferguson, I think, is the most famous, isn't she? She's the one who most famously said that if God had meant for us, to, uh, she was talking about language policy, and she most famously said, if God had meant for us to read the Bible in Spanish, he would have written it in Spanish. <laughs> and, there's that one. and as we all know, he wrote it in English. <laughs> So Madeline Cunin is not in the Ma Ferguson mold. She's somebody who did it on her own and who had uh, all sorts of innovative and interesting public policy ideas. She went on to work in the Clinton administration where she served as Deputy Secretary of Education and later appointed uh, to ambassadorship to Switzerland. Indeed, today I'm sitting in my office talking with her and the phone rings and she says, excuse me, I've got to take this call. Guess who was at the other end? Bill Clinton. <laughs> and Bill Clinton was calling her to say, I just read your book. It's fabulous. We've got to do something together here and have some kind of event where you actually talk about your book. So there's something that she's going to be doing with Bill Clinton, uh, some event. We're not sure what yet, but that's very, very, very exciting. So Bill Clinton was sort of in my office today. Yes. <laughs> is the way to, to think of what happened there. Certainly, that's going to get elaborated into, yes, Bill Clinton was here. In addition now, Governor Kunin is an author and a scholar. Uh, she's the Marsh Scholar and Professor-at-Large at the University of Vermont, uh, and she has written three books. The most recent one is The New Feminist Agenda, Defining the Next Revolution for Women, Work, and Family. So, I'd like to leave you with a quote about Governor Kunin from Jonathan Lash, who served as her Secretary of Natural Resources in Vermont. It's a great quote. She is a gutsy, visionary politician. I loved working for her. It was a blast. She's somebody who makes politician not a dirty word. Guts, vision, integrity, that's pretty good. And so, we're really lucky and pleased to have here today Governor Madeline Kunin.
former governor of Vermont. Thank you very Welcome. much. Thank you. Thank you. Take it away. <laughs> Thank you very much, Dean Brady. It's a um, real pleasure to be here and um, enjoy your summer. Uh, uh, left that behind in Vermont. Uh, I'd also like to recognize my husband who is here with me, John Hennessy, and uh, who, you know, you don't do things alone. And uh, he was uh, and is an inspiration for my writing, and I'm very grateful to that. Well, I'm also very impressed with Berkeley, and it's just nice to see the other side of the continent that we're on. But, um, you know, the title of my book is The New Feminist Agenda. And I'm sometimes asked, you know, why did I write it and what did I, why did I choose this title? So the best answer I can give you is the first couple of paragraphs of the book. So I will just start out with that. Um, five of us were meeting for lunch and reminiscing about the women's movement. I was never one of those angry women, one said. I'm still angry, I blurted. My reaction surprised both me and my friends. Where did that come from? Some source I hadn't tapped before. Upon reflection, I realized that I'm not angry enough to carry a placard down hot macadam streets in front of the nation's capital. Since I've written this, I've kind of changed my mind about that. Um, <laughs> as I did in my 30s when I marched for women's rights. But now in my 70s, I'm still dissatisfied with the status quo and harbor a passion for change. Oh, is this too loud? No, I'm just hearing it. Sounds clear? Good. Like, old age allows me the luxury of being impatient. There is not so much time left. And it permits me to say what I think, to be demanding, and best of all, to imagine a different world where there is true gender equality in the workplace, the home, and the political arena. Why the anger? What did I expect? I expected that the women's movement of the 1970s would give me a good answer to the question my students regularly asked. How did you manage to have a family and a career? I expected that affordable quality childcare would be widely available, that paid, paid family leave would be the law, and that equal pay for equal work would be a reality. I did not expect that women would still make 77 cents for every dollar earned by men. I expected that one third to one half of a Congress, governors, state legislators, and mayors would be female. I did not expect that number would also be 17% in the Congress, and the United States would be tied at 69th place in the percentage of women in parliaments out of 178 countries. I expected that one-third to one-half of corporate board members would be women. I did not expect to see that figure also at 17%. I expected that the high percentage of Fortune 500 companies would be led by women. I did not expect that figure to be 3%. 
I expected that misogyny, rape, and other acts of violence against women would be widely condemned and sharply reduced. I expected that Roe v. Wade would remain the law of the land. I did not expect that it would be eroded state by state. I expected by the year 2011, grandmothers like myself would be able to tell their grandchildren of how life used to be long ago when families had to figure out for themselves how to be both wage earners and caregivers. Some changes occurred that I had not expected and could not have imagined that women would comprise nearly 60% of college undergraduates, which is the percentage in this graduate school of 60% female, that women would comprise half of law and medical students, that women would enter the workforce in record numbers, and that the traditional family, supported by the father alone, would be overtaken by the two-wage earner or single mom family. That's the good news. The bad news is that many women who have careers that we never could have imagined for ourselves are still flummoxed by the most age-old problem, how to have a job and take care of the children, the elderly, the sick, and the disabled. Until we find a way to sort out how to share these responsibilities between spouses, partners, employers, and governments, gender equality will remain an elusive goal. We're in kind of an interesting time in this debate. You know, have women really advanced? Uh, next year is going to be the 50th anniversary of Betty Friedan's The Feminist Mystique. Hard to believe it's 50 years. But I think it's a good benchmark to try to assess uh, how and to what extent women have progressed and where we need to go and how do we get there. Um, depending on what you read, you know, there's a new book out. There was an article with the same title about six months ago, The End of Men. And The End of Men says, you know, all the jobs are going to be overtaken by women because they're technical they're jobs that women can do, and men are falling behind, boys are falling behind in school, and the battle's been won, nothing to worry about, we have to feel sorry for men um, as they're left in the dust. But then there was another article in either Time or Newsweek, I think it was Time, said uh, women the richer sex. Um, well, I don't know what statistic they looked at, but women in general still are the poorer sex when it comes to income. So, you know, there's often a flurry of optimism um, that then turns out to be somewhat overdone or hyper. Uh, you know, in politics, we often have the year of the woman. Um, when a couple of women are running for offices they hadn't run before, um, and this year is an interesting year because as far as governors are concerned, there's only one Democratic female candidate for governor in the United States at the present time. Uh, there are fewer governors today than there have been several years ago. On the good news side, there are more women running for the Congress and the, for the House and the Senate in the Congress. That's a record number. So... It depends how you look at it, but I don't buy into the fact, the thesis or the premise of the end of men, not when you 
repeat the number of 17% women in Congress, 3% in the Fortune 500, and the general poverty rate, especially of single heads of households. Um, and you know, when things have changed for the better, so I'm not a pessimist about it. You know, I was talking to a group the other day and, and about how journalism used to be. I started my career as a journalist. I graduated from Columbia School of Journalism. And towards graduation, uh, like many young students at the time, I loved to get a job at the Washington Post. So I went for an interview at the Washington Post. That was the dream job. And when I got back to Columbia, I got a call from the editor of the Washington Post. And he asked, are you still available for a job? We're considering three people, and you're amongst them. So in a breathless voice, I said, yes. And that afternoon, sure enough, I got the call back. And the only thing the editor said to me was, we decided to give the job to a man. And of course, today, I would have immediately dialed my lawyer um, and had a, had a rebuttal to that assumption. But the fact that I remember it, I guess, tells me something. But the fact that that was a satisfactory answer in 1957 tells you times have changed. Uh, today, the editor uh, of the New York Times is a woman. So we wouldn't have dreamt of that uh, a few years ago. Well, I tend to say a few years ago, but if I count it, it's actually many years ago, uh, as some of us seem to do in this age bracket. But uh, then I you know, just encountered a very small thing, but not without significance. You know, flying here uh, the day before yesterday, um, we spend a lot of time in the Philadelphia airport, not entirely voluntarily. And the, uh, I stopped at the newsstand, and they had three categories of magazines, men's interests, women's interests, and entertainment. Um, well, you can imagine the men's interest uh, Playboy, which of course discreetly covered up the cover. But under men's interest, there were two magazines. One was Scientific American, and the other was National Geographic. Now, what does that tell people? What does that tell young women? Uh, can I be a scientist? Uh, most recently, there was, there was a study in the, again, the Times science section, um, and you thought this was over. You thought, We've been there, and that's done. That's the past. Um, and submitting identical papers with men's names and women's names, and they were graded differently, not only by the men grading the women's papers, but also by the women grading the women's papers. So there is something still deeply cultural at work uh, that I think we at least, at the very least, have to be sensitive to. But you know, one of the questions, and the questions I'm sure that are debated a lot in a public policy institute such as this, is when we want change, um, do we have to wait for the culture to change, or do we enact policies to push, and it's not a popular word, but mandate change? And I think we've seen it 
in various areas. Probably the most dramatic change we've witnessed uh, in recent history is uh, the gay and lesbian rights movement. Um, you know, people who say this country can't change culturally um, really have to stop and consider that because when I was governor, I'll give you another example. Um, this was in the late, I think it was in 1986. And I was the first politician in Vermont to attend a gay pride march. And I spoke at the event. And behind me was a big banner about gay and lesbian parade or day or event. And my picture was in the newspaper. My face was quite small, but the banner was quite big. And somebody told me, after that, I went to an American Legion event, which was interesting study in contrast. And I, uh, a couple of days later, somebody told me in Groton, Vermont, which is what we call the Northeast Kingdom, um, there, there was a general store. My picture was pasted on the cash register where the red circle and the slash through it. So in those days, it wasn't that popular. Vermont was, however, the first state to enact civil unions and one of seven states to have uh, same-sex marriage. But I didn't dream, and I think nobody here dreamt, that one day the president of the United States would come out uh, in favor of same-sex marriage. So we've had significant, fairly rapid, I would say this, this happened in a 20-year period at most, uh, cultural and legal change in this country, though it is not uniform around the country, but it's moving in that direction. So what kind of change am I talking about? What I'm talking about is a policy change which would recognize the changing American family and the fact that there's a serious disconnect between how work is done and organize, and the changing family with the two-wage earner or single-wage earner family. I'm also talking about what is not so popular these days, except in some circles, maybe in Northern California more than elsewhere, um, the whole idea of the recognition that the United States is a total outlier in family work policies compared to the rest of the world. And I am speaking of the world. Most of you are familiar with the Scandinavian countries who have great childcare, paid family leave, um, all the workplace flexibility, all the policies that would enable this new modern family uh, to at least be a stronger family a, and provide a better future for their children. Uh, just to give you an example, Saudi Arabia which we don't think of as a stronghold for women. You get arrested if you get behind the wheel of a car. But if you can get your brother or your uncle or your son to drive you, you are guaranteed paid maternity leave. You are guaranteed paid leave three weeks before you give birth and three months after you give birth. Um, the United States now is one of three countries that has no form of paid maternity leave. And our, our colleagues are Swaziland and Papua New Guinea. <laughs> so you have to pause and think, you know, why are we so different? 
why aren't we like the French, which I know is throwing red meat to some people, but why aren't we like the French who have Ecole Maternelle, which is they have creches for infants and they have nursery schools and preschools, and 95% of French people actually send their toddlers or infants to these schools because they're very good. They're for everybody. Um, they're like Social Security is for us. It's, um, it is not targeted solely at people in need. So we also, you know, if we really, the, the three policies that I emphasize in this book are paid family and medical leave. We will be celebrating the 20th anniversary of unpaid family and medical leave, the first bill signed into law by Bill Clinton 20 years ago. Um, this coming February 5th. Uh, but unpaid family leave was considered a first step. It's nice, not everybody even does it. It only applies if you work for a company that employs 50 or more people. But imagine yourself a new mother and you have to make a decision. Do you stay home with your newborn um, and give up your paycheck? Because the only guarantee is you can get your job back, but you go without income, just at a time when all the bills mount up with the birth of a new child. Or do you say, I gotta work, I gotta support my family, and miss that precious and important time with a newborn. So unpaid leave does not solve the problems for many, many people. So we need paid family leave. We need uh, early childhood education, child care that is of high quality and can make a difference in children's lives and family lives. And we need something called workplace flexibility. Now, some companies offer these. Uh, I hate to call them benefits because they benefit us all. They don't only benefit the mothers or the fathers. <laughs> but some of you may have heard of a Red Anne Marie Slaughter's piece in The Atlantic where she talked about why women can't have it all. And her story is that she, was, she held the number three spot at the State Department, very demanding job, commuted from Princeton to Washington as two teenage <laughs> sons, and finally it was too much and she went back to Princeton. But she didn't exactly go back to Princeton to bake cookies. She still had a very important job at Princeton. But what was key to her was that when she was at Princeton, even though she wrote books and had interviews and a very hectic schedule and traveled, she was her own boss. She had flexibility. And flexibility is what most working women and increasingly working fathers want to have. So how do you do that? I mean, how do you create flexibility? Well, Australia and England have a law called the right to request. And it means you can request your boss that you work shorter hours or you work from home or you work a four-day week instead of five-day week after a year's maternity leave in England. Um, but the boss does not have to grant it. Um, you negotiate a compromise, and if you can't, it goes to a tribunal and is settled. At first, businesses opposed it, as you might expect, 
but now they kind of like it, according to recent reports, because they can retain their good employees. They don't lose talent. They don't have to retrain. And the cost of losing people and retraining them is much higher than the cost of creating this leave. It costs about five times to retrain a new person. Incidentally, California was the first state to create paid maternity leave. In 2002, they passed the law. In 2004, it was implemented. It doesn't pay fully. It pays a percentage. And that's the good news. The bad news is that a lot of people don't even know about it. Um, it is not promoted. It is not advertised. If you go on a website in England, you can get all the information on paid leave right away. We keep it a mystery. Um, and there's something else at work, which is cultural. People are afraid to take what they are entitled to. Because if you take the leave, you might be considered an unambitious worker. Um, you might lose your job, even though in California, there is no job guarantee. That was one of the compromises. There's one other state that has it, and that is New Jersey. Uh, the state of Washington passed a paid maternity leave law, but they can't fund it. Uh, the difference is California and New Jersey have something called temporary disability, which the employee pays a few cents. The employer doesn't pay, but of course there is still opposition. Well, California also is a great role model for the rest of the country with your two female outstanding senators. And you, you know, Nancy Pelosi, um, it's hard to complain when you're here. Um, I just wish it would catch on in the rest of the country. But you as voters have clearly said, no, these women are great. They're as good as, if not better, than the men we have elected in the past. Well, how do we move in a time when the winds are blowing in another direction towards implementing these kinds of family work policies that the rest of the world seems to think is a good investment in their future and in their children? One byproduct of our lack of family support policies is the child poverty rate. You know, we hear a lot about American exceptionalism. We are the greatest, and I believe we are the greatest in many ways. And when I was ambassador to Switzerland, I was very proud to represent my country. And, um, you know, and I believe in the American dream. I'm a product of it. My mother and my brother and I left Switzerland at the outbreak of World War II, and I was born in Switzerland, so I'm a naturalized citizen. But I'm not so proud of the fact that the United States of America has the highest child poverty rate of any developed country. Um, it's 22%. Sweden, if you want a comparison, has a poverty rate of 3%. What does this mean? Well, you don't have to do a deep study because you already know the answers. Children who grow up poor are more likely to drop out of school, more likely to be uneducated, more likely, more likely to be incarcerated, more likely to lead dysfunctional lives. And the bottom line is they're less likely to be capable of holding the jobs that are out there today and increasingly out there tomorrow. So one need not be a feminist to make an argument for 
enacting policies that strengthen families. One can be an economist, as James Heckman of the University of Chicago, Nobel Prize winning economist, has written that investment in early childhood education is the best investment we could make. So it's important that we start to look at it from an economic as well as a social or feminist perspective. Um, and it's a cultural change, which is hard, but sometimes policy can push culture, as I indicated. I think we also have to have more women in elective office. Not that all women vote uniformly. We've had enough experience to know with Sarah Palin and Michelle Bachman and, and others, and we shouldn't be shocked that they're there. They have a right to be in this diverse country. But in general, women do support children and family policies more. And, you know, I think the wake-up call where it came when there was a debate recently over access to affordable contraception. And it was five men sitting around a table who made that decision. And uh, Sandra Fluke decided she should have a voice. And she spoke up, and as you know, she's kind of a hero in many circles, and actually woke up a lot of young women to realizing something's happening here. We gotta do something. We can't take this for granted. There's an expression, well, let me just put it this way. We need more women at the tables where decisions are made. And if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. <laughs> it's, a, it's something to think about. And there's, unfortunately, some truth to it. So we also, in addition to electing more women at all levels, from school board to county commissioner, and I hope I live to see it, to president of the United States, we also have to form broader coalitions. We have to have men engaged in these issues. We have to have the elderly engaged, because all of these policies help the elderly. Um, paid medical leave would be a huge boost. AARP has to be on board for these family strengthening policies. The disabled, uh, and that can be a stronger group. You know, women, women's issues sometimes are either put in a little box over there um, and dismissed, or, you know, nice pat in the head. Yes, dear, we'll get to that later. Um, but these issues cannot be permitted to be isolated, circumscribed issues for a so-called special interest. Now, how do we do that in this time? when you speak, you know, when we're battling to hold on to what the government is providing now, when you have two different philosophies being played out in this election. Uh, on one side, as, as reflected in the Republican conventions and the Democratic conventions, on one side is, I built it myself, which was the banner at the Republican convention. And the idea that, you know, you pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You're on your own. Um, and let's not interfere with families. That's your private domain. You decide to have a kid. It's your job to bring that kid up. Um, and there's not a sense of community that our children, to use a well-worn cliche, are our future, not just your future as a parent. And on the other side 
is we're in this together. Um, and accompanying those two visions is what is the role of government? Uh, how close should government really get to enforcing a sense of equal opportunity and maintaining the American dream? And, you know, it's a debate that I believe was initiated when the country was founded, between federalism or not, the rights of the states, the Civil War was fought on this basis. So it's not a new strand of thinking in our history, but it is probably more sharply divided than we know in recent history. So I think our only argument has to be that when a child fails, um, that child exacts a huge price on all of us and that we do have a responsibility to be our brothers and our sisters' keeper. Not with government handouts endlessly, but at least a recognition of where the needs are. And I know it's a big charge, because we are at this point trying to hold on to what we have. Contraception, choice, Head Start, Pell Grants, block grants for childcare, so we're holding on to what we thought was safe. And at the same time, I'm asking you to go forward and demand more. And, but I think we have to. We have to move in that direction. You know, the argument is we can't afford it. I would say we can't afford to do nothing. Uh, we can't afford to be bystanders to the disregard of these children who are, their poverty level is related to adequate childcare, to early education, so their parents can work and bring home a paycheck. So I will conclude by saying it really is about family values. It's about values that value families. And that is what I believe we have to move towards in this country, and we have to not isolated as a special interest, but as an American interest, American future issue. Thank you very much. So you talked about some programs that would cost more money, like paid uh, family leave, especially if government is involved in that, as in the state of California. And you certainly talked about early childhood education, which the research is pretty overwhelming. That's an important thing. It'd be great to do, but it would be very, very expensive. Where are we going to get the money, given the budget deficits we now face? How are we going to solve that problem? Don't we have to solve the budget deficit problem first? We do have to solve it, but I don't think we should solve it um, in the way we're solving it. Um, incidentally, paid maternity leave in California is not paid by the government. It is paid by this tax. Um, and uh, that could be... And it's a very small tax that every, every employee pays, and nobody's complained. They probably don't even notice it because it's so small. Uh, and you could structure right. paid leave. I mean, but it is a government program. It goes through the state of California. Right, but not, it doesn't affect yeah. the budget. Yeah. Okay. Um, and that's important to know. Uh, some countries, the government does pay, mm -hmm. but it, it's not a necessity. The, the, the employers don't like it because... They have to find a substitute for that period. But 
the upside is they keep a good employee who will come back after this. Uh, you know, I had, I had a conversation with one of my neighbors who has an energy company, and she talked to a colleague, and they were talking about their employees, and my neighbor, Jan, said, um, oh, her colleague said, you know, every time a woman gets pregnant, I lose her. She quits. And Jan said, I haven't lost one of my pregnant employees because she cobbled together a paid family leave policy voluntarily. And the other woman was astounded that you could actually do that. And some good employee, employers already know that, but it isn't a policy. It depends on who you work for. It depends on who your boss is at the moment. It's very, and if you're higher up in the economic scale, you have more clout, more power. If you're low, you can't. So yes, universal childcare subsidized would cost money. Um, but again, you know, there actually was a universal childcare bill that passed the Congress in the Nixon administration. And I think it was Buchanan who started saying, this is communism, this is the state trying to control your children. And finally, Nixon vetoed it. But it almost became law. We almost had it. So how could we, I'm going to press a little bit here. How could we deal with the deficit? What kinds of monies would you move from one place to another to help with early childhood education? Well, I'd raise, you know, I'd raise taxes on the well-to-do who have been, have done very well in the last eight years, even since the recession started. And uh, while middle and income families have reduced their earnings um, because of the recession. So I, I, you know, I'm with Obama on this and uh, with the Democrats in Congress that you know, we, we, we had a much higher income tax during the Eisenhower administration. We have a very low tax system compared to where we once were. And uh, so I would, I would uh, make some reductions in some areas, but you know, I think the Ryan budget, and I know it shouldn't be so partisan, but it's hard to say these things without <laughs> getting into that territory. I would just have a more equitable and fair tax system. So here's an interesting question. We have a, a young person who says uh, that he or she uh, is a graduate of the Goldman School and is interested in getting involved in elective politics. How do you do that? Well, I mean, do you just sort of show up at a meeting and say, I want to be elected senator, or, or do you start someplace well, else? How do you do it? the first part of the sentence, right? You show up at a meeting. Um, and you go to a meeting, uh, you know, the party of your choice. Um, you get to know the people. You... One way to do it is volunteer in a campaign. You can learn a great deal uh, in volunteering, you know, how campaigns are run. But I guess the most important thing is to really figure out in your own head why you want to do this. Uh, what do you want to achieve? What difference uh, do you want to make? Because it is a rough road. And unless you've got that inner passion that your, your psyche sort of sorted out, saying, I can take this, um, then it's much harder. But, you know, not everybody's running for the United States Senate. You could start at a local office. I started with the Vermont legislature, and, uh, and 
as I said, it's a citizen's legislature. It didn't cost a lot of money to run. I had a relatively small constituency, at least compared to any constituency in California. And I think, you know, it's not the kind of thing you can take a course in. I mean, you can take political science courses, but I think probably economics courses would be important. I majored in history, and as I said, then I went to the School of Journalism. But I think the most important qualities are one, curiosity, and two, some form of compassion. Um, and maybe some, well, I sometimes draw a virtual PowerPoint. I know we got more questions, but you know, what makes you get up and say, I want to do something about this? Well, I'll give you three boxes. And the first box is something called anger. You're going to be mad about something, whether it's the traffic on your street, whether it's the war in Afghanistan, whatever. The second box is something called imagination. You have to try to imagine a different future. You know, the traffic will be controlled, the war will be stopped, economic disparity will be narrowed. But you have to allow yourself to imagine. Some people don't even allow themselves to go there. So you get anger, imagination, and then the third box is optimism. The belief that it's worth it, which I alluded to earlier. <clears throat> you know, they say that pessimists are usually right. But optimists change the world. So you have to have that crazy cockeyed optimism. Um, otherwise, nothing happens. So I think you can learn the other stuff. You can learn how to raise money. You can learn how to campaign. But you can't learn the inner fire or fever or whatever you wish to brand it uh, that makes you want to do it. Um, and you know we need voices. I know politics is uglier than when I was involved in it. The money is obscene, and we've got to change all that. But you can still make a difference, and that's, that's the most important thing to remember. Your voice can be heard. So anger, imagination, optimism. Right. Interesting. That's, that's and a nice. volunteer in a campaign. Yeah. Volunteer <laughs> in a campaign. And find a mentor. And do you think that there are women's groups that can be helpful in that are yes, getting yes. involved with? Yes, Well, I'm speaking tomorrow at Emerge in San Francisco, which is an organization which is very effective, I believe, in California. At least that's what they tell me. And, and they, um, they recruit and train women. Um, and also, of course, Emily's List raises a lot of money. There's a Republican group, I think the Susan Anthony Fund. Um, so I think all, all those groups are helpful. It's interesting when you think about it. You know, There's not a formal group for men running for office that recruits them and trains them. And, you know, one of the observations one might make is, you know, if a man walks into the halls of Congress, he sees himself reflected everywhere. The portraits, the statutes, he belongs there. A woman walks in and she has to look hard for the statue of the four women uh, who are part of the uh, suffrage movement. Um, so they don't need to be trained, especially because they have their mentors everywhere. But I would stress mentors for women because I do a lot of mentoring. A lot of women in public life do. And that's still the best way to both get the 
nuts and bolts, and the courage. Did you have a mentor when you started? I out didn't have politics? a single mentor, but I did. We did at that time start something called the Women's Political Caucus, and that little group of us. Another woman ran for the state senate, and I ran for the house, and we supported each other. And it's great to have a support team. It's great to have your family support you and your friends. You don't lose them all. There are some friends who will stay with you no matter who you vote for or what you vote for. Let's turn to uh, green and conservation. You did a lot of innovative things in Vermont. Vermont's known as a very green state. Can you say a little bit about how you think the things you did in Vermont might be replicable or applicable to other states? Uh, is that a model that other states could follow that could really help solve some of our problems with energy and greenhouse gases? Well, you know, that's an area where I'm less optimistic than I was when I was governor. I thought the environmental movement would really take off and galvanize public opinion. And at least in the last few years, it is not on people's top list, despite the hot days uh, you're experiencing here um, today in the last two days. I think global climate change is not where it should be, and science you know, deniers are having too much power uh, to limit action. But it's very hard, if I have to be honest, to compare Vermont and California except maybe the Sierra Madres and the Green Mountains, but even that's quite a stretch. Um, but I think there's an ethic. I think part of it comes from Vermont being a small state, mm -hmm. being a tourist state, being a skiing state, but also a high-tech state in some ways. I think there's a sense of respect for the land and for community. Um, and I hope that that will be contagious someday in the rest of the land. So here's a question I've always wondered about. New Hampshire is right next door, and it's got license plates that say, live free or die. And it's known as a place where there's no income tax and low taxes and so forth. And it's, it's more Republican probably than Democratic. Vermont is solidly democratic, even socialist, perhaps, in some places. How come these two places are so different? Well, well Bernie Sanders, I'm thinking about. Bernie Sanders, right. Well, I've been asked that question a lot, and I still don't have a very clear yeah, okay. answer. But I think part, part of it goes back to um, one theory is that um, conservative... Massachusetts people moved into Vermont, moved into New Hampshire to evade taxes. Right. And I was, I, but that's not a full answer either. Somebody traced it back to early settlers were different. The geology is different between the two states. The biggest difference I saw when, was when John Sununu was governor of New Hampshire and I was governor of Vermont. Ah, you're somewhat different. <laughs> I can't quite put my finger on it, but I, I, know. I know you're different. Well, I'll tell you a story he might not tell you. But um, he, was, he was busy trying to get a nuclear power plant online. And I was having trouble with our nuclear power plant in Vermont. It had certain disturbing uh, repairs and such. So 
I wanted the National Governors Association to consider a resolution to give governors more power over deciding the safety of nuclear power plants. Because um, we're responsible for the safety of the people who live there. Well, he took that personally. Um, and he told one of my aides, uh, I'm going to raise a million dollars to defeat your governor. Well, fortunately, he never did that. But did, so, didn't he believe in states' rights? Not on this issue. Oh, I see. I'm just, I'm just trying. I'm just asking. So sometimes I attribute to the newspaper. The Manchester Union Leader is a very conservative paper, not so powerful because newspapers aren't so powerful. Just different. It's just the Connecticut River divides us. Um, but it's a good question that deserves a better answer. Yeah, it's 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 certainly fascinating to see these two states that are so different and right next door to one another. Uh, Say a little more about the Conservation Trust and what it did in uh, Vermont and how it tried to affect land use patterns and the efficient use of land. Well, we have a law called Act 250, which was enacted before I came governor, but it's always controversial. What I tried to do, and still believe it, you know, there's such a common concept that if you're environmentalist, you're anti-jobs, and that any, any environmental initiative is going to hurt the economy. Well, there's so much evidence today that that is not necessarily true. There are you know, a few areas. You know, if you live in coal country, I'm sure there are jobs at stake. Um, but most areas, most industries, if they conserve energy, it's good for the bottom line. Um, if we can go to renewables, it is also better for our national security. So this argument that it's either or, you create jobs or you protect the environment, or you protect the environment and it's a job loss. We have to find a better dialogue and many are doing that. I thought it was solved some years ago when we talked about sustainable development, which was supposed to be a win-win situation. And that's why I named my non-government organization the Institute for Sustainable Development. I still believe in that, but there's always a tug of war that kind of emerges, and especially in harsh economic times that we are still in, uh, global climate change and conservation gets pushed to the side. Um, but those, in fact, science gets pushed to the side, which may be the most disturbing consequence of all, that there is this desire to disbelieve what most people believe is hard evidence about global climate change. So I just think we need more dialogue, more people at the table. And you know, you and the state have the most glorious national parks. Uh, what would we do if somebody hadn't invested in those parks years ago? Um, you know, uh, it's it's inconceivable, but it's inconceivable that we would do that now. Um, and it was Teddy Roosevelt, a Republican, who did that for the most part. So speaking of Republicans, what do you see happening? There's polarization in American politics right now. Where do you think that's going? I mean, maybe getting women in politics would be one way to decrease it somewhat on the grounds that women may be a little better at settling differences without dueling or something <laughs> foolish like that. But what other things need to happen to decrease polarization? I think 
the public has to express its disgust. I think we really have to speak up and say, we're not going to take it anymore. And we have to find a way to do that. Uh, it's, you know, it's gotten to the stage where I really think it threatens the democratic process with a small d. Um, people don't talk to each other. Um, people don't break bread together. I mean, Democrats and Republicans don't eat together anymore in the Senate dining room. And part of it is the constant quest for campaign funds. So I think one of the things that has to change is we have to find a way to reverse Citizens United, the decision that said corporations are people and they can raise as much money without even disclosing it. So maybe this election will teach us something, but it's too early to know and probably isn't enough. And it may take a couple of years, but I think we have to recognize that the power of money and the, the inability to negotiate is dangerous for a democratic system. Uh, and I'm really very concerned. What can we do? I think we have to vote for the, we have to support the people who do want to express compromise. I mean, the fact that Luger was defeated because he compromised uh, on nuclear dis world disarmament, um, the Tea Party folks threw him out. I mean, this man should be a hero. And you know, Ted Kennedy was one of the people who always compromised and worked um, with the Republican side. So we have to somehow do a huge shout out and say, we're not going to take this polarization. And let's do nothing Congress anymore, because they won't sit down together. Who do you think is going to win the election? <laughs> From my crystal ball, after much analysis, I can't tell you who will win, but I can tell you, who I guess it's fairly obvious who, who I want to win. Um, and you know, I was thinking of that the other day. It was a great achievement when the United States of America elected the first African American as president of this country. It was an enormous accomplishment that gained us respect from around the world. But we can't look at it as a one-time thing, as kind of an accident that we were caught up in this frenzy of we are the change we believe in. But re-electing him <laughs> would really make it clear that we have an extraordinary country that is not, even though racism still exists, sexism exists, ageism exists, the majority of the people respect Americans for who they are. Thank you. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.